right, welcome back to Proselytize or Apostatize Raw, and we are going to be doing a response to Genetically Modified Skeptic. I believe the name of the video is Four Weird Questions That Might Make You an Atheist, and uh, we got Stephen Boyce back with us uh, to help us respond to these uh, kind of questions, which he says might lead us to atheism. Welcome back, Stephen. Oh, and sorry, I forgot to introduce you, Russell. <laughs> I'm always here, man. You that know? is true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we get started, I wanted to point out two things on this. First of all, I like genetically modified skeptic as opposed to a lot of you know atheist YouTubers like a godless engineer. I have like absolutely zero respect for him. Sorry, because I know you want to have him on the show, Russell. But that's my opinion of him. Uh, but I actually I do like um, genetically modified skeptic. I feel like he's a thinker. He's a bit of an evidentialist. That uh, doesn't mean that I uh, think his arguments are any good. But I can appreciate that he is at least thinking through these questions. So uh, before we get into this, two things I wanted to say is that first, questions aren't arguments. So he's going to be asking us four questions and then act like at the end of the video that like these are some kind of knockdown argument against um, the existence of the Judeo-Christian God. Uh, and that is not true. Uh, having questions that you can't answer, like even if we have no answers to these questions, that would not in and of itself prove that God does not exist or that Christianity is not true. That just means that we got a gnarly question here that we can't answer. Uh, and then one other thing I want to say is he does not understand uh, how Christians understand omnipotence because he's going to make the argument a lot that uh, the question that he's asking is somehow incompatible with uh, omnipotence. And classical theists have understood omnipotence uh, not necessarily to mean that God can do absolutely everything. The Bible is very clear. There are things that God cannot do. God cannot lie. God uh, cannot swear by one greater than himself. So we know that there are things that God can't do. Uh, and so, like, there are basic logical constraints on God. Like, God can't make a married bachelor or a square circle. He does not seem to understand that. And uh, so a lot of his arguments hinge on saying that God should be able to do impossibilities. And I want to point that out from the start. Uh, Russell, you have anything you want to say before? No, we I, I think you you introed that very well because I, I would have said about the same thing there. I totally agree with you. So, I, clearly, I that it. means I did a good job because I patterned you. Right? <laughs> yeah, you know, you passed the uh, the test there. Um, Voice <laughs> is going to have a lot to say on this first one too. I think when it goes to about you know the uh, the flaws about you know how God communicates through literature. Love to hear his take on that. So with that, let's let's get it played. Yeah, and uh, boys, while you're while while you're sharing your screen there, uh, just one thing I want to say is we're not gonna like stop every few seconds to give our comments. We're gonna actually let him go through his full uh, question uh, through one question at a time before giving our thoughts on that. Good deal. Good deal. Literature. This one goes to anyone who thinks any piece of literature is the word of a tri-omni god. Literature, by its very nature, demands interpretation. Intelligent people can read the same passage with the same good intentions and still come away with very different interpretations of its meaning. We are flawed beings with abilities of perception limited to the subjective alone. Communication through literature always leads to varying understandings of that literature. If God authored a piece of literature, then that means that literature has an intended meaning, but that humans are bound to interpret it in differing ways, many of them missing the intended meaning. At first glance, this seems to only reveal a flaw in human nature, but upon deeper consideration, it reveals flaws in any authoring tri-omni gods. As I'm sure you know, countless sects of Christianity, Islam, and Judaism exist, varying wildly in practice, often due to differing interpretations of holy texts. 
This inarguably leads to suffering. War between various sects entirely aside, I'll give an example. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that the Bible forbids the ingestion of any blood, including life-saving blood transfusions. If they're right, that means that they're obeying God's will and won't be punished for violating it, while the majority of Christians who aren't JWs are further separated from God or even punished for not understanding the text. If JWs have themselves misunderstood the Bible, though, most Christians are just fine, while the JWs' misunderstanding of God's word has them dying preventable deaths. There are countless contradictory interpretations of any holy text out there, many leading to the kind of unnecessary suffering I mentioned. If God authored or inspired such a text, he either couldn't do any better, didn't know the suffering he would cause, or didn't care if suffering resulted. If he couldn't do better, communicating in a medium immune to misinterpretation, then he isn't omnipotent. If he didn't know the suffering he would cause, he's not omniscient. If he didn't care if suffering resulted, he's not omnibenevolent. Any way you cut it, you can't consider the author of such a text to be anything close to a triomni god. Of course, there's a reasonable explanation for the flawed nature of sacred texts. Maybe they were just written by human inspiration alone and no god was ever involved. Shouldn't you worship... Alright, uh, Russell, do you want to start or do you want me to give my thoughts on that first? Okay. David, what did you think? Yeah, uh, so I, I would say first, his first point here is uh, that he says all forms of communication, um, <clears throat> you know, are, are all forms of literature are open to interpretation. And I would say that that's right, but that's true of all forms of communication. Uh, even, you know, speaking, uh, if we're speaking, you know, that's open to interpretation. Uh, so I don't know what, he never gave a, like an alternative of what he thinks would be a better way for God to communicate with us. Communication by the nature of what it is, is open to interpretation. And yes, people are going to misinterpret it. Happens all the time. So this in and of itself, you know, it seems weak to me. I also want to say that he contradicted himself because on the one hand, he said uh, that, you know, all literature is open to interpretation. Then at the end, he's saying, well, if God couldn't do better than this, then um, he's he's not omnipotent. But hang on. You just said that, you know, literature by the nature of what it is, is open to interpretation. So it, it amounts to, uh, you know, saying that God should be able to communicate with us without communicating with us. Uh, he's telling us that God should be able to give us something that's not open to interpretation, which by definition is open to interpretation. Yeah. So uh, th that's just how communication works. It's going to be open to interpretation. Kind of the uh, whole oh, roadrunner fallacy type thing. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I would say then that uh, the main message of Scripture is clear. I mean, salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. Um, yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, despite, you know, where we might land on different issues like eschatology, ecclesiology, uh, for the most part, Christians are able to agree on, um, you know, the main thrust of Scripture. So yeah. that, uh, that, that, that um, I think, should be noted. As well as, you know, there's this little thing called, like, hermeneutics, exegesis, learning how yeah. to interpret Scripture properly. Uh, right. You know, yeah, you yeah, can... Yeah. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, no, I, no, I hear you. Good. Yeah, I say that there is a way we can understand what the scripture is saying. Uh, we just have to, have to learn how. And the fact that everyone hasn't cultivated their, you know, abilities there is not itself a proof that there isn't an objective meaning here to be found. Yeah. Uh, so, and, yeah. Let, say, let me just jump in, David, because because you're you're taking all my points too. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I was gonna say like when I'm listening to this, I just uh, there's the question of you know I just want to ask why. 
you know, you know, you know, ask, you know, what do you mean, you know, by this? And, and that, you know, during his whole, whole lecture here and what you're piggybacking off what you said, yes. And I don't want to cover it again. So I want to kind of look at it from kind of like a theological standpoint. None of this absolutely tells us whether Christianity is true or not. You know, the way God communicates in this. So it wouldn't make me an atheist at all. You know, so when if I was I God, this, I wouldn't have know, done it that way. And you were starting to highlight this. That's why I kind of like wanted to jump in because, you know, this is probably one of my biggest points here is that, you know, if Christianity is true, then there's a reason for all these interpretations. There's sin. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so people are going to have different interpretations as they're trying to be guided because they're separated from God. And, you know, yeah, we're all trying to learn, but, you know, we're in a fallen world. And under Christian theology, that's what it's about. You know, we're under a fallen world and we're trying to seek God and, you know, stuff like that, you know, and, but we still have that curse on us. We still, we still have that, that in this world, you know, and maybe I'm yeah. not articulating it well, but, no, no, I you know, I, I really think that, you know, that that's not a question that's going to make me too skeptical. So I don't know why he would want to put this as like one of his main rebutters with his human human theology here or his philosophy here. But I, it just it doesn't it's not really strong to me at all. Yeah. And uh, one more point that I would make on that and then, you know, we'll turn it over to Stephen to get what your thoughts are. Uh, is I would actually say that literature seems like a great way to communicate to me. Um, yeah. Would he rather God is giving us direct revelations? How subjective is that going to be if, you know, you've got no way to actually go verify that this is what um, God has actually communicated? We have like this great gift with lit with God communicating to us through literature is that we can do the work of uh, being able to understand scripture. You know, of course, you know, being properly trained and such, but um, that we can actually go to an objective reference point and that we're not dependent on like what some prophet or something is telling us or, or just God communicating to everyone directly. And then we're all saying, oh, well, God told me this. God told me that. This gives us an objective way of uh, seeing what God has said for ourselves. And so I think that that is a great reason for God to communicate through literature. Uh, Stephen, what are your thoughts? Yeah, guys, those are great points. In fact, this is a common question in atheism, and most of the work that I do in apologetics is in this realm. So here's the thing. <clears throat> Even the disciples recognize that verbal teaching will die out. They had to get it in the documents. In fact, that's why we have the Gospel of Mark. Peter did not want to write. They've tried to press him in Rome to write his sermons. So they finally talked John Mark into doing it, and this is recorded by the fathers. And so John Mark wrote down the sermons of Peter, and as Eusebius said, not in a particular order. And Peter went through it and just affirmed it, made sure, yeah, that's accurate, etc. But Peter did not want to write. He wasn't interested in writing, but he also knew that if the message was going to continue, it could not last by verbal communication. So actually, they were preserving the message by putting it into documentation. We do this in the secular world. If we hear somebody say something, we always go, uh, can we get that in writing? Because writing seems to validate. And what they don't understand is that the New Testament, the Old Testament scriptures are covenantal documents. We do the same thing in this country. We get it documented. So if God is licensing something or giving a proclamation, he did speak verbally. In fact, we see uh, in the book of Zechariah chapter 1, Zechariah asked them the question, your fathers, where are they? The prophets, 
The ones who God actually verbally spoke to, where are they? Do they live forever? No, they're dead. But he said, but my words, talking about the written word, overtook them, meaning that they continued on. The prophets were going to die. Those that directly heard from God in the physical ear were going to die. The only way to, to preserve the message to the next generation would be to give it in a written form because they're going to die. So when we look at that, we do the same thing. It's like, well, how do we know what they decided back in 1776? You know, how do we know what they said? Because they documented it and put it on a, on literature. That's how we know what they said. Because if we were left just to interpret what they may have said, we'd be doing a bunch of speculation. But what is written is evidence. Verbal is not evidence. You got to have it in writing. We should say it all the time. Can we get that in writing? Because we don't see it as certified until it's documented. And if we look at the scripture as covenantal documents, we can actually understand that God was intelligent to let it go to the literature form, not stay in a verbal form. So yeah, that's writing point. it has that certain permanence then. Sorry, yes. Russell. Yeah, yeah, I, would say, right. I would say it brings a permanence and a preservation of the message. Yeah, we have to deal with textual variances. And then God even assumed that would happen. He said he would preserve his word. If he didn't assume there would be, he says, well, God must not have thought that through. Well, the fact that he said he would preserve it indicated he knew that would happen. He knew that in the message, it would be mistransmitted, but that in that he would supersede transmission to where the message would not be lost. And as Bart Ehrman admitted, no single cardinal doctrine is hanging on any textual, uh, uh, any textual variant in the New Testament. Hello. What that means is, is the message was preserved. So God wasn't like, well, I didn't know that would happen. I, I just, I just kind of went with a plan and whatever happened, happened. He said he would supersede it, and history has proven him to do that very thing. Any more thoughts on that, Russell? Before we no, nah, man, I'm, I'm ready. To, yeah, let's move along, man. That's that was good. That was good enough, I think. All right, let's go to his second question. Let's see here. Cruelest God imaginable. This is for fans of Pascal's Wager, which is a pragmatic, not evidential argument for belief in God over disbelief. Just for review, the argument goes, if God doesn't exist, a believer suffers only a finite loss in death. But if he does exist, a believer enjoys an infinite gain in heaven. Meanwhile, if a person does not believe or act as if God exists and they're right, they stand to gain just finite luxuries on earth. But if they're wrong, they stand to suffer infinitely in hell. Therefore, a rational person would seek to believe in God and live as if he exists. Obviously, there's a false dichotomy here between the existence of a very specific God and the non-existence of God, but let's explore the logic of this argument and see where it leads. Within the reasoning of this argument, the objectives of belief and worship are to gain pleasure and avoid pain. The argument is purely an evaluation of risk considering, well, rather arbitrarily chosen supernatural factors. There is a way to make this argument more powerful pragmatically, though, and it's through the consideration of slightly different factors. Instead of creating a false dichotomy between one of the many popular concepts of a god and the non-existence of god, why not create a true dichotomy between belief in a god with the best imaginable reward for believers and the worst imaginable punishment for doubters and every other religious position? <laughs> the soap you shower with? It's Cause I'll let you in on a little in. 
<laughs> well, that's good. Invent a god who is as cruel as can possibly be imagined to doubters in order to do away with the false dichotomy and make the wager more persuasive. See, if you believe in and worship the definitionally cruelest god and you're right, you'll get to go to heaven. But if you're wrong, you won't go to the worst hell imaginable. You'll go to, at worst, a lesser hell. If you don't believe in the definitionally cruelest god and you're right, you'll either go to a lesser heaven, a lesser hell, maybe you'll be reincarnated, or maybe you'll go nowhere at all. But if you're wrong, you'll go to the worst hell imaginable. So, a reasonable person must believe in and worship the cruelest imaginable god. This argument uses the same logic as Pascal's wager and arguably even improves upon it by eliminating the false dichotomy. So if you're an advocate for Pascal's wager, being unconcerned with evidential arguments and more concerned with evaluating any conceivable risk, you should argue for the worship of the god specifically crafted for this wager, the god of Pascalianism. Or, you know, you could realize that arguments like this, which are entirely unconcerned with the basis of their premises, fail to make any valuable point. I want to shout out a friend of mine who is the creator and pope of Pascalianism. He's Cosmological on YouTube and at CosmologicalYT on Twitter. He made a video about Pascal's wager a couple years ago where he made the case for Pascalianism, and I just thought it was hilarious and brilliant. He doesn't make videos anymore, although I wish that he would start back up, but he is still on Twitter and is one of my favorite people to follow. Give him a follow. The link to his Twitter is in the description. I don't think you'll regret it. Why did... All right, so uh, on yeah. this particular one, um, it, it is kind of going up against Pascal's wager, which is not something I've ever been uh, fond of. Uh, and I also want to say from the start, I'm absolutely convinced that Jesus is by far the coolest God out there. So if that's just his argument, then, you know, uh, that you should believe in the coolest yeah. God, then, um, yeah, I got that. But, uh, yeah, I, I would just say um, that he's probably taking on a very, like, almost straw man form of Pascal's wager. Uh, from what I understand, uh, it's more if you have some kind of reasons to believe Christianity, uh, but, you know, are, are still, you know, not certain uh, of that over skepticism, it would make more sense to believe that uh, over the skepticism because of what you, uh, well, because of the consequences, as he pointed out. Uh, so this isn't just some kind of a in a vacuum thing. It's more like if you, you know, see some evidence, but you're not fully persuaded of it, uh, I would see Pascal's wager as, you know, maybe best something to kind of get somebody over that line. Well, what are your guys' thoughts? I, I would just say that, you know, read Pascal. <laughs> Pascal said a lot of things. It wasn't just his wager. You know, it wasn't, you know. That wasn't I, his I only think, argument. Yeah, well, I mean, and Pascal's not saying, you know, we don't have, you know, don't use evidence and stuff like that, you know. I think I think what we've done is is taken us, and we do this all the time. We're, we're a snippet uh, uh, culture. We take like one-liners and blow them up, and next thing you know, you can read a whole bunch of different context into uh, what it means. You know, like you know, for example, it happens, right? You know, crap happens, right? You know, you could you could use that for anything. <laughs> you could use that. Well, you know, I stubbed my toe. Well, it happens. You know, I stepped in it. It happens. You know, but you know, it, it, and it's funny that way. We are we are we take these little you know clips of of sayings and we just blow them up and now this guy's making an entire argument based off of that when pascal said a lot of good things before so i one thing i would say is just read pascal the second thing is is that 
as a Christian, I never use that argument. You know, I never would would just stay on that. For me, it was about evidence. I was convinced. I studied the main religions. You know, I you know I went into all that. You know, and I I was just I was floored by the evidence that Christianity had. And the yeah. the more I got into it, the more it convinced me even further. So, well, so I, I guess I have a question in this, and maybe maybe he has other videos somewhere else that explains things more. And he was just trying to do a short one. He he made an assertion in the question, and then he talks about Pascal all the way down here, like on a scale of one to ten. He asked a question at a one, and answered number one with number ten, like a theory. Like he didn't really work through the question. Am I wrong? Or I mean, I guess I was expecting something a little bit more elaborate or something a little bit more convincing. It sounds like, hey, here's a question. I'm going to answer a question with a theory that could be actually interpreted differently than mine. But that answers the question. I, I feel like we skipped like nine steps. Yeah, my- yeah, I I agree that he wasn't really like clear in how he was uh, getting how he was getting to where he got. I mean, because he was talking about the evidences and then like you got to believe God and A plus B is this and therefore you should just conclude this. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Like there's you actually got to walk through each one of those scenarios. You can't just list them and say, which one sounds bad, which one sounds good. Like, no, no, no. We actually we need to walk through each definition that you just gave weigh it against Christian philosophy because some of those predicaments he gave, I don't know of any Christian apologist that would say, oh, sure, yeah, there's guys that believe that. It's kind of straw man. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't know. I guess I heard the question, and I feel like, man, we could walk through this question in, in a lot of ways. Oh, and it's like, no, no, Pascal over here, it's like, wait, wait, whoa, that's way down there. We haven't even gotten there yet. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. That um, And I think to some extent his videos tend to depend on kind of the shotgunning off a lot of things. You know, he talks fast, he talks confident, and he talks well. I mean, I'll give him sure. that. His videos are well produced and stuff. Uh, so, you know, to you, just some person who's, you know, maybe starting to question their faith uh, comes across that. It sounds like maybe he's making sense that he, you know, he, he knows about Pascal and stuff. He knows about the theistic arguments and, oh, and I guess, you know, this doesn't work. Uh, and as you said, uh, yeah, I mean, Christian philosophers are there they have thought about these questions a lot and um yeah probably engage with their work i I just believe that if any person who's struggling with the existence of god who came with questions in that realm i i think that regardless of your worldview of of god whether even even bringing in like a more arminian or or calvinistic view david uh you know whichever way you go i think that there could be some reasonable answers regardless of which camp you went to and asked some of these questions that wouldn't determine you to land where he just landed that's what i said i feel like and he's very well spoken i'm not saying he's like dumb i'm just saying like i feel like we missed a lot of steps here oh yeah a lot of steps yeah yeah i would agree yeah any more to add on that russell no, I think we're ready. We'll go to his third question. Create animals with the ability to feel pain. This question delves into a bit of theology that all Abrahamics share. God made animals with pain receptors. Many animals, especially the kinds we eat the most, can feel physical pain in exactly the same way as humans. Many of those animals can and do suffer psychological trauma just like humans as well. Yet. 
God not only condones people killing and eating animals, but he created animals with the capacity to suffer while already knowing full well that they would. Then, for a long period in history, he demanded humans to slaughter and sacrifice animals to him just because he enjoyed the act of devotion. This direct encouragement of the suffering of the innocent is entirely inconsistent with the tri-omni nature. If God couldn't create a food cycle for all creatures that didn't include suffering, then he isn't omnipotent. If he didn't know the system would lead to suffering, he isn't omniscient. Now, if he could have done better, if he could have made a food cycle that didn't promote suffering, but chose not to, he's not only lacking in omnibenevolence, I would argue he's a sadist. Of course, there's another explanation for this issue. Maybe God had nothing to do with the formation of the food chain, and humans just made up a myth that morally justified killing animals so they could keep doing it without internal moral conflict. Whether you're a believer in the Abrahamic God or not, you probably already know that people in many religions outside of yours tend to have doctrine that morally justifies actions which seem immoral but allow that group to better survive or propagate. If you are a believer in this tri-omni God, maybe it's time to realize that believers before you likely made up these logically inconsistent ideas within your doctrine, too. What? Now, now this, ooh, I think this was maybe one of his, uh, actually one of the better questions that he asked, because this is a, a legitimate question that, like, even we have, I think it was Trent Doherty just uh, actually recently wrote a book on this question. Uh, I know William Dembski has a book uh, out there uh, addressing this question. So this is like a, a serious question that I think um, is actually worthy of being considered. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'll be honest, I don't think there's necessarily an easy answer on this question. But uh, so in the first place, it, it seems to come from this idea of pain. And um, pain is a good thing. It, 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 it lets you know that, you know, there's something wrong with your body. It's absolutely essential to our survival. So this is a good thing that God gave us that, you know, we have pain because, I mean, so many times we wouldn't know that something is wrong without it. Uh, and so, yes, it can be abused through torture and stuff, uh, but that's not why God gave it to you so that people could torture you. He gave it to you for your own good. And I think that's probably the most obvious response on this. You know, maybe not a wholly satisfactory one, but I think we have to realize that pain is a good thing, that suffering is a, a misuse of pain. Uh, I would also say that, like, even just from a, this is me from like a very logical perspective, at the very best, that argument challenges the idea of a good God, but that would not like by any means answer uh, like cosmological, teleological arguments, anything like that. At the best, that that's a challenge to the goodness of God. And of course, I realize we want to defend the goodness of God as well. Uh, but I would say that, you know, when he's talking about God, you know, wanting us to uh, sacrifice uh, animals or slaughter them, he almost acts like God's asking us to torture them. Uh, and that is not true. You're not going to find any commands in the Old Testament that I'm aware of that you're supposed to, you know, slaughter an animal or torture it. Both like slit its throat, it's over. Uh, this wasn't about torture. This was about sacrifice. And even then, it was not recognized that this was like a good thing. Uh, this is something to cover sins, so it, it wasn't a good thing. But you know, even then, you're not torturing the animal. Uh, there are humane ways to kill animals that we eat, so that that seems like a very weak point that he brought up there. Uh, and maybe just most seriously of all is that he, the whole thing was assuming morality, assuming that there is some kind of objective standard that uh, people and God is obligated to uh, conform to. And to me, that, that seems like that immediately assumes 
theistic, a theistic sort of metaphysic, because why, you know, on sort of atheism, would it be wrong to, uh, you know, create this sort of pain or whatever it is he's objecting to? It's assuming some kind of moral standard, and I think that's immediately, uh, really depends on the existence of God in order to justify that. Russell, what are your thoughts? Yeah, to say pain and suffering is even a bad thing without the existence of God, I think you're stealing from God to make your point. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think what you said has merit there. I, I don't have too much to add on this one, but the fact that the the Hume thought is still very prevalent here, mm-hmm. you know, and the claims like, you know, it's illogical. He makes it. He 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 comes away with saying, you know, our faith is illogical. You know, there are logical contradictions, and that's just not true. There could be good reasons why God allows pain. There could be a morally sufficient reason why animals go through pain. And it could be with the suffering, the bondage of decay or whatever, you know. I mean, it could. there could be uh, other reasons as far as God setting up this world for humanity. I don't even know if you can make a scientific argument that animals can conceive of suffering as we do. And think of it as, as something like you can't live with. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot to be questioned there. And I don't see how that's very strong because, again, you're you're kind of like, like you said, David. It has nothing to do with, you know, the beginning of the universe, the God, the teleological argument and stuff like that. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of where I'd leave it there. Well, I think it goes back to um, the problem of evil in the world i mean animals suffer because sin came into the world i mean that's that's the reason of it pain is in the world not just for animals but for humans now i do know a lot of atheists that would be begging him to stop this argument who really like steak and i don't think they would appreciate his argument and fallacy there but no i mean you're right uh, david uh, palman you made a statement that is absolutely true like there's a huge difference between like torturing an animal versus what they didn't sacrifice in fact proverbs chapter 12 verse 10 says a righteous man regards the life of his animal uh but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel so even the scripture tells us to regard the life of animals not to cruelly treat them now again the animal sacrificing he made the comment that that god enjoys the act of devotion I don't think God enjoys sacrificing anything. I think it shows the severity of sin. And in fact, that moment that the man was, if you go back to the Levitical law, when the animal was on the altar, he had literally placed his hand. The man who committed the act of sin, who did the wrong, there was the innocent bearer of it. He would have to put his hand on that animal to associate his, his guiltiness with that innocence transferring of it there that man probably didn't sit there and said man i feel so good about myself right now that was a time of embarrassment and remorse i mean you had to look at an innocent thing dead that was your fault to show truly how god would sacrifice his own son to take the blame of sin that he did not commit for others so when we're talking about the human sacrifice god wasn't like oh i enjoy this this is great this is no, it's showing a sin costs the innocent. Sin affects the innocent. The animals were under the curse because of man's sin. Nature is under the curse. But that's the beauty of redemption. 
God is restoring everything. He didn't leave it that he's not going to leave it that way. In fact, I think in the new heaven and the new earth, I think there's going to be a redemption where there's animals there. I think it's a restored Eden. I know people differ on that, but I think it's going to be a restored Eden. It's going to be back to that state where pain's not there anymore. But I think he's conflating a couple issues there when we're talking about the sacrificial system versus animals, you know, just being beat to death or something by a, a cruel owner. Uh, also versus uh, the sin curse that affects everybody, including humanity and nature itself into the world. I don't know. I, maybe I'll think I'm off on that myself, but I, I actually think that those things can be separated and talked about on separate levels. Yeah, no, I, I, I would agree with that. And I think you made some really good points there, especially uh, with, um, you know, bringing up that we are to regard the life of animals uh, in scripture. Mm -hmm. it's, it's an excellent Absolutely. point. All right. Well, I think we can move on to the next one then. One more to go. One more. Let's see if I can get pulled up. Oh, also, Stephen, on this particular one, I think he's going to do like a bit of an outro thing. So you can just stop it whenever, uh, you know, it seems like his objection is done. Okay. God just create people in heaven and skip the trial period of earth? This question comes from my friend and fellow atheist YouTuber, Apologia. So, Paul, I hope that I do this question justice for you. If you haven't checked out his channel, please do it. His content is simply excellent through and through. I've been on it. Pretty much every major atheist YouTuber that's even active now has been on it. It's great stuff. You won't regret it. Links in the description. Okay, so, if God is omnipotent, he knows out of all the people he creates, who would choose to believe in him and follow him while on earth. He also supposedly doesn't want people to suffer and only wants people to believe in him and follow him. However, God allows people who choose him to suffer while on earth, and much worse, he creates people that he knows will not choose him while on earth, and those people end up suffering in hell. There's an inconsistency there. If he's actually omnibenevolent, why would he not exclusively create people who would choose to follow him if they were put on earth and then send them directly to heaven, skipping the suffering of earth entirely? If your answer to this question is along the lines of having free will and the capacity to suffer is better than lacking free will and not suffering, then you've just hurt the case for your doctrine. That answer implies that the people who would be created in heaven would not have free will, and that people in heaven right now don't have free will. If a life with free will and suffering is better than one without free will or suffering, then that means that earth must be better than heaven. So free will can't be the answer to this question. We once again face the problem of evil. If God couldn't exclusively create people in heaven, he isn't omnipotent. If he didn't know his creation of humans on earth would lead to suffering, he isn't omniscient. If he could create people in heaven but won't, he isn't omnibenevolent. As always, though, there is another option. Maybe this idea of God is simply nonsensical. The truth is, the concept of a tri-omni-god falls apart immediately under anything more than momentary consideration. To me, it seems that there's a notion out there that this kind of God is the most obvious, or most likely, the default idea of God. The only reason this absurd idea of a deity is so prevalent today is because of the often genocidal physical and cultural conquest of Abrahamic faiths, especially in the West. Just because it's perhaps the most prevalent idea of God where you are, don't think it's the hardest to counter. After all, how powerful is a God, really, when their nature falls apart at the sound of a few simple questions. Okay, I oh. just... 
Okay. I so think that's good enough. <laughs> you tortured yeah, the, me too long. <laughs> oh, the, the, the first point I'd want to make here is uh, at the beginning, he said, um, if God is omnipotent, then he knows what would happen. I think he was conflating omnipotence with omniscience. omniscience. Yeah. But uh, that, that, that was a minor thing. I'm sure he just misspoke there. Uh, but anyway, uh, so the first thing here is, I, mean, I don't know if he's just ignorant of, like, soul-building theodicies or not, but, um, like, th this is, seems like a pretty obvious one to me, uh, is that we would not be the people that we are without the lives that we live on Earth, making the choices that we do, and becoming who we are. God didn't create us in heaven, uh, you know, as whatever, uh, just making us however he wanted us. He actually wanted us to choose who we were going to become. Uh, and part of that, at least as an Arminian, I would argue, is that would include the choice of whether or not we wanted to spend eternity with him or not, uh, whether we were willing to repent of our sins and such. So uh, kind of a twofold answer there, which I think is the most obvious one, is that God gives us the time period on Earth both to give us the opportunity to become who we are and also to uh, make the choice of whether or not we will, in fact, spend eternity with him. Uh, also, just to touch on this uh, issue here is that uh, he said uh, that God, you know, knows who wouldn't believe. Why didn't he make them? Uh, now, here's where and maybe Stephen will go off on me on this, but uh, I would bring in middle knowledge at this point that God uh, would know that there are certain people who would not believe if these other people did not exist. Uh, you know, if, you know, say that like some person like Napoleon Bonaparte just didn't exist. Uh, the world would look completely different today. So uh, the reasons, or at least part of the reasons that we believe, that the people who do believe do, is because of other people who have existed and have, you know, their choices have affected generations. And so they are an integral part of God's plan to see the people who he knows would believe uh, that come to fruition. It's not like God could have just, you know, created the people he knew were going to believe and the world would have unfolded the same way with all them believing. No, 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 no. The world would look completely different. Uh, and there is no guarantee that these people would have believed then under different circumstances. Uh, so there's that. And finally, this point about there not being any free will in heaven, um, that doesn't follow at all, uh, even, you know, on a libertarian view. Uh, we admit that there are limitations on our freedom. So, you know, when you're in heaven, you don't have the sin nature, you don't have the uh, sinful influences there, but you are still a person who you've become on earth. So having these sinful influences removed and you're not able to sin, that does not imply that you don't have free will. But I think it was necessary to have that capacity at one time in order for you to become the person uh, that God knew you would become. And I think that's all my points on that. Russell? Yeah, you know, I think you you know, you know, hit it very early on, too, is that this guy doesn't have a good grasp of what we mean when we say omnipotent, omnipresent, you know, omniscient. You know, he doesn't have an, a true idea of what we mean by the triomni God, you know. So I think that a simple reading of Plantinga's uh, idea of the freedom of the will and the free will defense— uh, for the problem of evil, I think would do him justice because it would dive deep into it. Uh, making claims about how his, God's nature can fall apart by a few questions, well, I don't think you're asking really good questions. And I don't think that it does fall, fall apart for the simple fact is there are logical answers <clears throat> to them. 
and it's and it shows to me that you just haven't dived deep enough. So maybe you abandon your faith a little prematurely, you know. And and, and for the seriousness of making a commitment to Christ, I mean, it's a serious thing. Yeah. It's that that stuff. What it says to me is that a you didn't take that commitment seriously, as Boyce would say. <laughs> I don't even think you ever were saved type thing, you know. Um, another thing is, or maybe. You know, you didn't give it the time that it needed for you to mature in your faith and really ask the hard questions and get the wrong answers. And that could be there could be several reasons for that. The fact that you went to a church that didn't give you answers, that didn't promote giving you answers. You know, there's several reasons why that is. And instead of just abandoning your faith. Dig deep. I did. And I came out on the other side. OK, at least I hope I am. <laughs> but anyways yeah that i mean that, that's pretty much all i have to say of I it mean, you know there's a lot of stuff he was saying again that are really easy to answer and if you just do the work put in the the time you're going to be able to find those answers and, and you know a lot of a lot of things you said david i had already written down in my notes too but Stolen. you know well yeah, no i mean you so what i think what we would all say you know i mean it's obvious is there any free will in heaven? How do you know? You know, have you been there? You know, or <laughs> or maybe on, like, or, or like, let's let's see what the Bible has to say about heaven. Does it say we don't have free will in heaven? Oh no, it just says we're going to be up there with God. You know, and, and there's going to be it's going to be amazing. You know, more than we can ever imagine. You know, so it, and, and like you said, there's going to be things that are obviously absent there, and that freedom does have a limit. I mean. We got to start defining terms. What do you mean by these things? You know, what do you mean by freedom? You know, what do you think God's nature is like? Oh, you think it should be your way? And it all comes down to, hey, I want God to be like this. And if he's not like this, I'm not going to believe in him. Why? Because he doesn't do things I like him to do. And in that, you're not having a God anyway. You're just having an idol. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're right about a lot of these guys, a lot of the friends of mine, even guys I went to Bible college with who are now atheists, um, a lot of these young atheists that are his age, our age, it's not that they're not asking good questions. They're asking the questions to the wrong people. Like you're going to people that don't have answers and then you assume that, well, that's the Christian answer. It's like, well, hold on now. Like do a little bit more research than that. Um, now, as far as his his proclamation, see, I have a I have a slightly different view, as you know, about the reason for evil, the reason for good, the reason for all of it. I believe that in evil in the world and in good in the world, God is exalted at his at his greatest evidence of himself. Whether that's his righteousness, his judgment, his holiness, or his grace, his love, both being in the world create an opportunity to reveal God at a level we would never have known. For example, had Adam and Eve not sinned, we would never know God in his forgiveness. We would never know God in mercy or grace. We wouldn't know how to define those terms. But because of that, we see beauty. But even in God's judgment, um, he doesn't cease to, to exemplify himself and reveal himself. He's revealing an attribute of holiness and righteousness and justice. People are shouting, like we talked about in the earlier segment, people want justice. Well, where did that come from? Well, that's an intuition that's given in our image bearing of God, justice. 
So the problem to me is, and, and, and I have a different view of heaven too. Like, I don't believe we're going to be in heaven for all of eternity. I think heaven is an abode of God that's invisible, that's not a place of dwelling. I think it's where God is. I think that we're going to be here in the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, and so here's what happens. God saves, you know, we go straight to heaven. That's it. Here's the problem. In, in, the, in the fall of man created a dilemma, massive dilemma, yes. But then came, like I just said, now we can see a side of God we've never seen before. Redemption, grace, forgiveness. And he's reversing the curse to bring us back to Eden. I don't start, when I, when I witness to somebody today, I don't talk about heaven and hell hardly until the very, very, very end. I don't start that way anymore. I start with the fall. God created a perfect world with perfect people, and it was corrupted by sin. God did that. And in doing that, he revealed his grace, his mercy, his judgment, his righteousness, his wrath. All of God's attributes are revealed, all of them, not just part of them. But in that, he's reversing the curse by bringing in a new kingdom. And so in that process and journey of humans, of failure, sin, we see also redemption, ashes to beauty, brokenness to restoration, straight lines with crooked sticks. God is redeeming and restoring back to Eden that which was lost by grace, by mercy, by provision. And when we get to the end, we're going to be able to see not just where God just made us robotic and bam, there it is. Uh, heaven, that's where you are. You don't need to go through all this other stuff. No, because then God's honestly robbing himself and we're missing out. We are missing out on seeing God do the miracle of restoration and provision and grace. So I, I look at it like this way. We're going to dwell here forever, the new heaven, new earth. He's going to redeem the whole thing. And if we just jump started to that, not only did God, which really this is what it's all about, rob himself of his greatest glory, we robbed ourselves of being a part of that or being able to see that. Now, I know there's a lot of implications that come in our differences here, but I'm trying to be careful so I don't rub one side and create a second <laughs> Yeah, you're fine, man. And, you know, I, I think that that sums it up well, David. Uh, you know, you have three guys that, that just answered these questions, you yeah. know, each a little differently. But we do have sort of the same view here that these 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 questions can be answered logically. There is no logical inconsistency. Yeah. And, I, and at least to me, they're not weird questions that are going to make me become an atheist. David, yeah, yeah. And, what, do you think, what do you think about some of what I said? I'm sure you agree with at least some level of, of that. I, I do. Um, <laughs> I would want to take kind of Brian Abashino's uh, both and view with that is that um, you can have you can have everything that you just said and you don't have to have God determining that. So you can still have God planning to uh, show the redemptive side of himself to people and you can't have that without God somehow decreeing the fall and uh, decreeing for people to go to hell. You can't have God manifest all those attributes simply by knowing that these things will transpire. And so you can get everything that you said without, I think, uh, some of the problematic moral implications that compatibilist view brings to that. But what I, the greater point I'd want to say is that demonstrates there three different ways that question could be answered the answer that yeah. i gave the answer that you gave and then there's a way to synthesize both of those and so uh this shows that you know uh there are actually maybe sometimes more than one answer to the questions that uh you know i had multiple points on most of the things you brought up 
So uh, there are answers out there. Yeah, and you know, I would just say, because we're getting kind of... Long. Yeah, yeah, we're getting way long here. (laughs) But I I just want to say, anybody that that is watching the show now, there are good answers out there. If you're at a church where you're not getting those answers, you can watch this. You can get in touch with me or David, or even Stephen. We'll put his 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 information in there too if he wants. <laughs> but uh, that's what we're here for. And let us know what you think in the comments. Again, this is proselytize or proselytize raw. And we'll hopefully see you next week with another video. Take care, guys.